0: Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? What are some things standing in the way of being the best version of you? For a lot of people, life, your past, and sometimes your current situation can cause roadblocks in your life. Mental health is incredibly important, and so many, including myself, can benefit from talking to a professional and working to dismantle those roadblocks. That's why I'm excited to talk to you guys about BetterHelp. BetterHelp knows no two people are the same and will help to assess your personal needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. These incredibly convenient appointments are in a safe and completely private online environment, and you can start chatting with your new therapist in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You can message with your counselor at any time and get a timely response plus schedule weekly video or phone sessions, which means no driving to an office, no waiting rooms and no awkward small talk. Just meaningful sessions with experts who specialize in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, family conflict, LGBTQ matters, grief and so much more. There is truly someone there for everyone. And BetterHelp is committed to finding your perfect match, which means if you and your counselor don't mesh for whatever reason, they make it easy and free to seek someone new if needed. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And with financial aid available and access worldwide, they truly make it easy for anyone to seek the help they need. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com slash Morning Cup. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental were two health. two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird morning cup of murder there is something very special about the relationship between a mother and son but today's story adds a layer to that relationship that is not only inappropriate but deadly on may 18th 2000 a mother and son duo were convicted for their long lists of money making crimes so if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder Sante Crimes, born Sante Singers on July 24th, 1934, was born and raised in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. At least, that's one of the versions of her tales. Sante would give so many conflicting stories about her life and childhood that it would be difficult to discern fact from fiction. But according to one of her sons, Kent, she was the daughter of a respectable family who was unable to keep up with her wild antics. She married her high school boyfriend just after graduating in Carson City, Nevada, divorced after three months, and in 1956, reunited with another high school sweetheart named Edward Walker, whom she married the following year and had her son, Kent. A few years after their marriage began, Sante was caught and convicted for shoplifting, separated, reconciled, and then finally divorced Edward in 1969. In 1971, she met motel tycoon Kenneth Kimes, and though the validity of their marriage was always in question, had son Kenneth Karam Kimes in 1975. Sante and Kenneth had a special bond, one that she did not share with her son Kent, and pretty early on in his childhood, Kenneth was taught his mother's line of business, swindling. Sante spent majority of her life conning people out of their money, merchandise, and real estate. She had elaborate cons, committed arson, forgery, and theft when necessary, and never once let motherhood stop her. She would introduce her husband as a wealthy and powerful ambassador to get into the best parties, including a reception at the White House, and was the first to mention her long list of influential friends even impersonating Elizabeth Taylor a time or two. At first her husband was in on her little schemes, making money from the American Revolution bicentennial by selling their own personal posters and bumper stickers and falsifying press releases from the bicentennial commission and getting Kenneth Senior to speak at the Rose Bowl Festival and getting them an audience with the First Lady Pat Nixon. They crashed parties, slipped through fingers of the likes of the FBI, Secret Service, and other security officials, and told grand stories of completely false patriotism and fame. On one particular occasion, Sante and Kenneth, while young Kenny was asleep in the hotel, went down to the piano bar in the Mayflower Hotel and stole a $5,000 mink coat. Sante had plenty of mink coats of her own, but for some reason felt the need to steal a new one and the pair escaped, evading trial for several years using doctor's notes, until finally in July of 1984, they were brought to trial. But while the jurors were in deliberation, Sante simply walked out of the courthouse, hopped on a plane and headed to California. Several years later, that very conviction was reversed on the grounds that the defendant, Sante Kimes, had not been present when the jury announced their verdict. Now, while all of this seems pretty harmless and may even make Sante a kind of hero in some eyes, behind closed doors, she conned young, homeless immigrants with housing and employment only to enslave them inside of her home and treat them with extreme cruelty and violence. Because of this, Kenneth spent five years paying off lawyer fees and defending them against slavery charges before Sante was finally arrested in August of 1985, sentenced to five years in prison for violating anti-slavery laws, was sued by a Honolulu civil attorney, and took a plea. Kenneth kept their son while she served her time, raising him in a relatively normal home until she came back in 1989, and Kenneth died in 1994. With just her and her son on their own and Kenneth leaving them with nothing in his will, Sante went back to her old ways, this time making her son her partner in crime in a series of cons that were more dangerous than ever before. Years before, a man named David Kasdan allowed Sante to use his name on the deed of a home in Las Vegas that was actually being occupied by her and her husband in the 1970s but later somehow convinced a notary to forge David's signature on an application for a $280,000 loan using that house as collateral. David wasn't too happy with this arrangement and threatened to expose Sante for her con. So she did what she thought was necessary to keep up the charade. And on May 9th, 1998, young Kenny shot David Kasdan in the back of the head in his Los Angeles home. His body was found in a dumpster near the L.A. airport shortly after, but the weapon was never located. The FBI and LAPD assigned to David's case immediately began looking into his business dealings and found the loan application that had been forged, linking him to a Las Vegas home, which had since been partially burned down. Thinking the owner may be responsible for David's death, they looked into who that may be and came up with the name of David McCarron. But David McCarron was a homeless transient who immediately told police that it was Sante Kimes and her son Kenny who not only lit the home on fire, but forced him to stay in the home while they awaited their insurance payout. They also located a man named James Patterson who claimed to have sold the handgun responsible for David Kasdan's murder to Kenny Kimes, and in order to avoid felony charges of his own, agreed to help them nail down the mother-son duo. In the meantime, Sante and Kenny started renting a room in the Manhattan mansion of 82-year-old socialite Irene Silverman. At this point, Kenny had rented out the room with $6,000 in cash and under the assumed name of Manny Gurin, but had no references or forms of ID, and just kept promising Irene he would get those to her as soon as possible. He never did, and she started to grow suspicious, especially after they continually asked her for her ID and social security number, refused to let their faces be seen by security cameras, and refused to let housekeepers into their rooms. She started to keep notes on the odd comings and goings of her new tenant, and a week after arriving, Irene asked this Manny Gurin to leave her building, and when he did not, she cut off his phone service and instructed her business manager to start the eviction proceedings. The last time anyone saw Irene Silverman was on July 5, 1998, after asking her maid to walk her dog on the roof garden. When she returned, Irene was gone. The business manager was phoned and he called the police and they arrived to find no signs of the elderly woman. It wouldn't be until their 2000 trial that anyone knew what happened to her. That's when Kenny told courts that his mother used a stun gun on the elderly woman, after which he strangled her, stuffed her into a bag, and disposed of her in a dumpster in Hoboken, New Jersey. Police started to question all of the employees and tenants in the building and found that Mary Gurin was not only missing suddenly, but was not the true identity of the man living in the mansion. No, he was 23-year-old Kenny Kimes, who had recently been arrested along with his mother, Sante. That part of the story goes as follows. In late June of 1998, James Patterson got a call from Sante saying she wanted to sell her expensive townhouse, the one belonging to Irene, and needed help with the paperwork. He, of course, called the FBI and agreed to meet with her. They met on July 5th at the New York Hilton at around 6 p.m., At around 7 p.m., Kenny showed up and approached his mother and James, at which point the FBI and NYPD descended upon them and slapped cuffs on the mother and son. When they searched the Kimes' stolen black Lincoln Town Car, police found what they referred to as a treasure chest of evidence against the duo. Things like a stun gun, likely the one used to subdue Irene, forged social security cards, two handguns, a pair of handcuffs, a folder full of forms and applications related to Irene's mansion, 15 notebooks in which Sante had given detailed descriptions of her many fraud schemes, including information on both David Kasdan and Irene Silverman. There was no denying that, despite how unbelievable their situation was, that these were the ones responsible for at least two murders. Despite the fact that Irene's body was never found, both Sante's journals and Irene's own notes were enough to name her as the prime suspect. And it didn't take long to find out that these crimes were far from the first and only the duo committed. No, they were wanted in a number of states for things like check fraud, auto theft, arson, insurance fraud, and the disappearances of a number of individuals. The pair were brought to trial for Irene Silverman's murder first, and almost immediately, the nature of their mother-son relationship was brought into question. After a number of issues with Sante's behavior, the jury unanimously convicted them both of not just Irene's murder, but 117 other charges, including robbery, burglary, conspiracy, grand larceny, illegal weapons possession, forgery, and eavesdropping. Sante, during the sentencing portion of her trial, claimed she was being framed and likened her trial to that of the Salem Witch Trials. The judge branded her as sociopath and degenerate and a remorseless predator before imposing 120 years in prison for Sante and 124 years for Kenny. In October of 2000, Kenny held a court TV reporter hostage, pressing a pen to her throat and demanding that his mother not be extradited to California, where they had yet to be tried for David Kasdan's murder. He didn't want her to be that far away from him. In March of 2001, Kenny was sent to Los Angeles for the trial and Sante came the following June. Kenny, facing a death penalty, shocked everyone when he changed his plea to guilty and implicated his mother in the murder in exchange for a plea deal that deal, that his mother not be sentenced to death if convicted. He relayed all of the information of their various crimes, as well as implicated them in a third murder, that of banker Saeed Bilal Ahmed in 1996. No charges were ever filed in that case, and Sante denied all involvement. Sante Kimes was serving a life sentence plus the additional 125 years when, on May 19, 2014, She died in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for women. Kenny remains in prison. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 19th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.